Good morning, Cross Point. It's good to see you all this morning. If you're joining us online, we are certainly glad you're here. If you're in person, then obviously we are glad to see you. We're going to start this morning or continue this morning in prayer. Um, one of the things that came up this last week, um, one of our pastor search team, Aaron Sherman, texted and said, have we done any corporate prayer for our new pastor? And he said, and if not, we need to do that. Well, we have done that, but we're going to continue that this morning. So that was a good reminder from Aaron. We're also going to be praying for an unreached people group of the nations, the Yadav people in India, 58,642,000 people, 99.98% are Hindu, only, only 0.01% are Christian. There is no evangelical movement in that people group that we know of. So we need to be praying for them that God would send someone to that nation and the Holy Spirit would be working in their hearts. We're going to be praying for our families. We're going to be praying for our children's ministry who are right now over in the youth building in Kids Point Worship. So that's why the seats are a little more sparsely populated this morning because a lot of our adults and our children are over there and worshiping, so we need to be praying for them. We want to continue to pray for our youth ministry, our young adult ministry, our adult Bible study, our men's ministry, and our women's ministry. They're all vital. They're going on, and we're praying that they continue to grow in this new season of our church. Then we'll be praying for this morning. So let me ask you to join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging your presence in this place. Father, you are here because of your love for us. <clears throat> we do not deserve your love. But Father, it's because of your love for us that you provide your grace and your mercy, your tender care, your protection. That you, the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Father, all of that this is a direct result of your very nature. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Father, I pray this morning for someone that we, as far as we know, we haven't met yet. But it's our new pastor that you have in mind, that you have in store for us. Father, I pray that even now, his study, and if he's standing to deliver in his current worship uh, place of worship in his current church, that his study would have been sweet this week, that his relationship with his wife and children would be blessed. Father, that you would prepare him for making this transition and coming here to be our new teaching pastor in your perfect timing. Father, help us trust your perfect timing in all things. Father, I pray for his family, that they would also be prepared for this transition. And I pray for his current church, that when he comes to the place of knowing that he's, he's going to come here, he can tell his current fellowship, and they will receive that news with joy, knowing that he's following God. And knowing that you have a plan for them as well. Father, I pray for the Yadav people in India.
0.01% are Christian. That we know of, there's no evangelical outreach, but Father, that's your domain. The Holy Spirit may be working in people's lives and preparing their heart for seeds to be planted. We don't know that, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would send a person or a group of people to plant seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. And that because of the the pre-work in their heart by the Holy Spirit, they would receive that seed and it would grow and produce a thousand times over. Father, we ask you to reach this people of the nations. Father, again, I I pray for our our families here at Crosspoint. I pray that you would be at work in those families and that their time together would be sweet and focused on you. But I pray for our, our Kids Point ministry is there this morning having uh, Kids Point worship over in the youth building. I pray that your word would be taught to them, that they would hear your word. They can go home and then ask their parents those difficult questions. We may not look forward to that, but we should. Because that means they're listening, they're hearing, they're looking for answers. Father, as parents I pray, and grandparents, I pray that you help us have your answers in mind when they ask those difficult questions. So those conversations can be sweet. Father, I pray for our youth. I pray for our young adult ministry, our adult Bible study, our men's ministry, our women's ministry. All the things that are going on in this location and in this community associated with Cross Point Fellowship. That we would, Father, seek to honor you in all that we do. And Father, then I pray for our time this morning that the Holy Spirit would lead us into the truth of your word. Help us apply that truth to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right, let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Philippians 2. Neil's already pointed out that we're going to be dealing with verses 1 through 11. So bookmark that, have that in place. Um, I'm going to be going to a number of different verses this morning uh, to support what God's Word is telling us in Philippians 2. And you can turn quickly and find those if you want to, but our media team is going to have the verses up here on the wall behind me, so you can read those rather than turning. But if you like to turn, just go ahead. Um, That's not going to be a problem. If I were to title, and I did title this morning's sermon, of Christ's example of humility. So to talk about humility, I think we need to define that word. And you can find all kinds of definitions of the word humility in the world. And so earlier this week, I was sitting at my desk, and I had my computer open, and I googled the word humility, and I got all kinds of stuff. (laughs) You can well imagine. Most often, humility, from the world's perspective, is defined as a modest or low view of self. It would look like this. 
not having anything to look up to, not having anything to really say, but just almost cowed. That would be that that would be the world's definition of humility. Also saw that it's a quality or state of being humble. So I thought, okay, let me look up the word humble. Guess what I found? <laughs> Seriously, a state of humility. <laughs> so <laughs> it was this fancy word called tautology. It, it was defining itself by itself. That didn't help. So I had to dig a little deeper. But the word humble very seriously defined from a world's perspective as a low social, administrative, or political position. Okay. So again, very low. Modest pretensions or dimensions. Lower in dignity or importance. To humble someone is to, is to decisively thump the opponent. It could have been Texas A&M thumping Alabama last night. Whoop. <laughs> I, had to, I had to get that in. I'm sorry. Yeah. They didn't decisively thump them. They didn't humble Alabama. But as I was watching, and I honestly forgot the game was on. I turned it on just before they snapped the ball for that final kick. So I got to celebrate the last two seconds. Anyway, but as I was sitting there watching that, and I was watching the A&M fans just fill Kyle Field, and I watched the Alabama players walking off with their heads down. Okay, so that's somewhat of a picture of being humbled. But I found these synonyms for humility. Shyness, meekness, lowliness, passiveness, being docile, unpretentious, submissive, timidity, subservience, self-abasement. Those are the world's words for being humble or being in a state of humility. Most of these synonyms are not positive in nature. So then I searched for the positive aspects of humility and being humble, and I actually found some. It's the freedom from pride or arrogance. Man, that one rings. It does, because that's what God tells us. It's the ability of putting others' needs before your own, thinking of others before yourself, not drawing attention to yourself. I thought about how I would say that while I was standing up here in front of y'all this morning, but y'all understand how that goes. But then I found this question, and I actually found it on the internet. It was really amazing. What is why is humility important to God? And then it says this, humility allows us to, full, to fully submit to God. God wants us to acknowledge that apart from him, we can do nothing. And those were actually on Google. I celebrated that. Because God is the one who knows us. He's the one who created us. 
He has a plan for each one of us. And when we begin to put all of our faith in God, we humble ourselves to the point of being completely dependent upon Him. So that's where, that's where we're headed this morning. This takes us into our passage. As we continue in our study in the book of Philippians, I want to set just briefly our roadmap. We're going to be looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're going to go through and unpack those verses a bit at a time. We're going to see what God reveals about the humility exhibited by Jesus and his life here on earth. And then we're going to look at an application of how that works in our lives. So let me ask you now, turn to Philippians 2, and if you're able, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Now, you'll notice that this second chapter begins with the word, so. We need to understand also that many times that same Greek word is translated into the word, therefore. So we're going to treat it that way this morning. And our rule in study is when you see the word, therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore? Therefore. So that's what we just did. Why is that word there? To really understand the therefore, we have to see the context. Now, a friend of ours, and he was the pastor of our oldest son and daughter in Nashville. He's over in Rockwall at, at Lake Point Church now, um, Josh Howerton. He would many times say that context is, he would pause, and everybody in the congregation would say, King! Context is king. We must understand the context of these verses we're looking at and the passage that we're digging into. We can't be guilty of just pulling a verse out of context and trying to make it mean what we want it to. So we have to look at the context. So from last week, we found that Paul is saying that everything that he experienced was for the advancement of the gospel. 
He said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He went on to say that to live is Christ is all about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and to fulfill our obligation in teaching the word to honor God in all things. And then verse 129, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That was a word that was a little hard to digest last week. And that concept that we're to suffer. But that's what God called us to do. So having that context, now to verse 1. Therefore, because of what was just said, Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, So many times when we see the word if, it, it sounds like there's doubt. Because if it is or if it's not. you know. So we, we many times see the words if or the word if as a, as a beginning of a doubt about what's being said. I don't believe Paul did that. I believe Paul used the word if in order to encourage the people at Philippi to examine these points in their lives to make sure that they're there. And it works for us as well. So let's look at it from that perspective. If he's challenging us to examine ourselves and then ask this question, do I really have encouragement in Christ? Do I really have comfort from love? Do I really have any participation in the Spirit? Do I really have any affection and sympathy then when we examine ourselves and before God, we can say, yes, I have these things. I'm working on these things. They're growing in me. Then with that verification, we communicate with Paul that we're of one mind. We're of one spirit. We have the same mind. And Paul says that will complete his joy as he's writing to the church in Philippi. That is an absolute assurance of the love in Christ. Now again, this goes back to last week when you considered that one of the keys of one of the key themes of Philippians is encouragement. Paul is seeking that encouragement from the people in Philippi. He's wanting this encouragement. Remember, he's in prison. Even though he knows that to live is Christ, he's in prison. He's chained to the Praetorian guards 24-7. He's talking to those guards about Jesus. He's not remaining silent. You know, his goal is to spread the word, and that's what he did. And he had a captive audience. <laughs> Even though he was one in prison, the guard chained to him didn't have any choice. <laughs> he was there. And Paul used that for the glory of God. And he's seeking encouragement. Even though that's going on, there had to have been moments when he was like, okay, God, <laughs> I know you called me to do this, and I'm doing this. But he may have had a down moment. And how do we get through down moments? By encouragement of someone else. Being of the same mind, same love, full accord, 
Next, Paul gives us the imperative that we are to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. That's the word of the morning. If you hadn't picked it up yet, that's it. Humility. Now, remember my definition from a few minutes ago? And if I was in a classroom with this, it would be a perfect time to say, okay, take out a piece of paper and a pen. We're going to have a pop test. <laughs> and even though you may not be in school right now, that still evokes that little fear. Oh, no. Okay, I'm not going to give you a pop test. We're not going to do that, I promise. But here's that definition. God wants us to acknowledge that apart from him, we can do nothing. That's humility. Now the next two verses, in verses 3 and 4, demonstrate very clearly how we can continue to walk in humility with one another. We are to be other-oriented. In verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, God doesn't say that we're to ignore our interests. You know, if, if we have a job, if we have family, we have responsibilities, we're to do that also, but not to the exclusion of others. God says we are to look to the other's needs and be other-oriented. God, through Paul, is pointing out that we are not to do anything from rivalry, competing with someone, or conceit, counting myself first. But in humility, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. This is a pretty good proof that God spoke these words. Okay, we know in 2 Timothy, it says, all scriptures breathed out by God. And we know that, why? Because I don't think there's a human being in their own humanness would write this passage. It had to come from God. We take a stand when God's word is in question. If there's eternal significance in something that someone is saying, and they're saying it wrong... They're teaching untruth. Yeah, we stand up for that. We stand up for the things that have eternal significance. We defend scripture. But for everything else that doesn't have eternal significance, we listen to the other, we, we listen to the other person. We give them ear. Okay? We don't have to challenge everything. We should not challenge everything that other people say. If it has no eternal significance. Okay. We're to be other oriented. We can give preference to the other person. We can do that in our culture today. Some people wear masks. Some people don't. If I'm not wearing a mask and I see someone wearing, wearing a mask, do I need to go up and tell them that they're wrong? No. If I'm wearing a mask and someone else is not, do I need to go up and tell them that they're wrong? 
No. We give preference to the other person in love. Romans 12, verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, that's the New American Standard. Okay, This is the ESV. In the ESV, that last phrase says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Same thing, but I really like the NASV that said, Give preference to one another. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't use your freedom to beat somebody else up. We're not to do that. But through love, serve one another. 1 Peter 5.5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 5.21 then says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That should be our go-to verse in dealing with people. See, it's not just wives who are commanded to submit to their husbands. We're called to submit to one another. So submission is just as important for a husband as it is for the wife. Submission is just as important for the young man as it is for the older man in the fellowship. Both are to be submissive to one another. More seasoned women, I dare not use the word older, but more seasoned women are submissive to the younger, just as the younger are, are submissive to the more seasoned ladies. It works both ways, giving preference to one another. This glorifies God. It points to this one thing, lovingly serving one another. Giving preference. Now, I grew up in a culture in Fort Stockton, Texas, with my mom and dad, three older sisters, I tell my sisters all the time, that's the reason I went into counseling. Growing up as the baby, the family with three older sisters, you know, thumping me daily. Um, We get along great. We we love each other. But I also saw my family and my extended family giving preference to others. I saw that practiced a lot when I was growing up. For example... There were several times, multiple, multiple number of times, when I'd be in the car with my grandparents and there would be a funeral procession coming toward us. My grandfather would pull over, but he didn't just stop on the side of the road. He got out and stood in front of his car with his hat over his heart, honoring the family that had just suffered a loss. He was giving preference to others. So I grew up practicing that. My dad always told me, boy, if you're going up to a door and you open it and you see somebody coming behind you, you step aside and let them go first. It's what I grew up with. Then in the summer of 1973, and some of you are going, what? <laughs> that's, a, that's an old number. You know, but it, it, it is an old number. That's okay. Um, 17 years old, so in 1973, I was in New Hampshire, 
and completely different culture, I got to tell you. Because the first time I went to the little store in this, in this town, I was, I was there with my sister and brother-in-law for the summer. So I walked up, and as I was walking toward the door, a car pulled up, and a lady gets out. So I go to the door, and I open the door, and I step back, and I was expecting, thank you. That's what I usually get. Instead, she stopped at the front of her car and just kind of stared at me. Like, what are you doing? And I just said, go ahead. And she went, shoo. She literally used the word shoo. Go on, shoo. I can open the door by myself. I was thoroughly confused. <laughs> I mean, I thought, this is what I'm supposed to do. But she was like, mm-mm. I can open the door by myself. You just go on. Shoo. So I kind of shrugged and I went in and she actually waited until I got out of the store, got in my car and drove off before she approached the store, the, the store herself. I mean, she didn't know me. She was waiting for the other shoe to drop. She was waiting for something bad to happen. You know. But that, that, that really put a, a twist in my thinking right then. Um, <clears throat> some people don't understand that concept of giving preference to them over myself. And, and in that culture, they, they just don't do that. But Jesus demonstrated in this a very clear, a very specific example, the night of the Passover meal with his disciples. In John 13, verses 3 through 9, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into, into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now Jesus demonstrated in the minds of the disciples what they considered this ultimate service and sacrifice, even humiliation. Because as they used this upper room the master of the home should have provided a slave to wash their feet, but he didn't. And let me tell you how bad foot washing was as a servant. First of all, if, if you were Jewish and you had a Jewish slave, maybe they were indentured to you for some reason, that Jewish slave could not be asked to wash anybody's feet. You had to have a Gentile slave to do that task. And if you didn't own a Gentile slave, you would ask your neighbor, hey, can I borrow one of your, one of your Gentile slaves? We've got people coming over, and I've got to wash their feet. And it's recorded that frequently the Gentile slave assigned to that task would commit suicide rather than kneeling down to wash other people's feet. Because it was a nasty job. They wore sandals, the roads were dusty, nothing was paved, and they walked in the same dirt that the animals did. I won't get any more graphic than that. You, you understand what I'm talking about. So Jesus performed this, in their minds, the ultimate sacrifice of service. But Jesus was going to show them in just a few hours, the next morning, actually, that supreme sacrifice of service. When he would put himself 
in a position where he would be crucified. Die. Be buried. Verses 5 through 8, Philippians 2. Paul goes on to remind us of that ultimate demonstration of love and sacrifice and service made by Jesus. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Consider at least in part what we know from Scripture about Jesus' sacrifice. He became incarnate. That is, God in human form. In verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he was a baby. And he grew up, catch this, Jesus grew up in a blended family. I remember in 1990, a friend of mine called me. that was in the council of ministry. And, and he said, Morris, I, I've got a question. He said, I've got a, a couple that's in here. And he said, and I had mentored him uh, and discipled him in counseling. And he said, talk to me about what God says about blended families. <laughs> and my first response was, that's not God's design. It's for one man and one woman to marry and be together for a lifetime. That's God's plan. He said, but what do we do with blended families? Almost instantly, that didn't work. That one did. <laughs> instantly, it came to me through the Holy Spirit. Jesus grew up in a blended family. Mary was his mother. Joseph was his stepfather. That took me to my knees to pray through that attitude. With God's miraculous provision, Mary became pregnant as a virgin. That's how that happened. But Joseph was his stepfather. In Luke 1, verses 34 and 35, Mary said to the angel, after the pronouncement that she would have a child, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So how did this happen? It's real simple for God. It was a miracle. The same God that spoke creation of all of the universe, he spoke it into existence out of nothingness. He provided this miraculous way for Jesus to be born human. There's much that we simply cannot understand about what Jesus set aside to come to the earth. We just can't wrap our brains around all of that. But we simply accept that's exactly what he did. How he was 100% God and 100% human? The math doesn't work. But it does for God. Very simply. He was human, is human. 
had a sin nature, but he never sinned. Not by action, not by thought, not in his mind, his will, or his emotions. He remained pure. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was also submissive to imperfect parents. That'll get you. And he grew in wisdom. How did that happen? I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. But that's what God's word says. When he was 12 years old, he went with his parents to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And as they left after that fest, that festival, they realized that Jesus wasn't with him. They went with them. They went back and found him in the temple. And they returned home. Well, Jesus got up with them and they left to go home. And in Luke 2, verse 51 and 52, it says, And he, that is Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So how does God become submissive to imperfect parents? Well, he did. That's what God's word says. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Jesus demonstrated humility in who he was. He demonstrated that humility in his life beyond washing the feet of his disciples. In fact, he was the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah approximately 700 to 750 years before. In Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. I was talking about the scourging that he would go through. Just the beatings that he went through. Put him in a place that was even beyond recognition. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne out our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And then in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many making and makes intercessions 
for the transgressors. And that's us. Jesus loved us sacrificially to come to earth in the form of a man, grow up and live a life in a blended family, submissive to his mother and his stepfather. He worked with his stepfather as a carpenter until he was about 30. Then he called 12 men to walk alongside him for over three years, and then he died on a cross to pay for our sins. A debt that he paid to God. A debt paid by God to God for us, an unholy people. To pay for the consequences of the original sin of Adam and Eve. Look again at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now we get to the next therefore. Because of that. Therefore, in verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. See, these last two verses of this passage, the reveal, it reveals the results of Jesus being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, Jesus agreed, <clears throat> and he gave himself up for this death at human hands. Think of that. Really. <clears throat> Let that sink in. That a perfect God would allow himself and voluntarily put himself in a place of being crucified to pay for my sins. To pay for our sins. He voluntarily died at the hands of men who were knowingly or maybe unknowingly servants of the enemy. Satan has been trying to thwart God's plan for redemption of mankind from the garden. Actually, it is even before that when he tried to overthrow God in heaven. He wanted his own way. So Satan's plan, and has been since the fall from grace in heaven, to stop God's plan for mankind and stop his plan for redemption. How has he done this? Well, think about it. Right after creation, to destroy God's perfect design and environment in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, which was what they were created to live in. The nation of Israel, time and time again, Satan tried to destroy God's chosen people. In the book of Esther, for example, King Ahasuerus, I practiced that for a long time yesterday. King Ahasuerus ordered all Jews to be killed, thus attempting to destroy the entire nation. 
And God stepped in and saved them. Then the line of the Messiah. All the way from Adam and Eve's first sons, Cain and Abel, they blew it, but it went to the next son, Seth, who was the next in the position of the Messianic line, all the way down to Jesus himself. It's exactly what God did, and that's exactly what Satan was trying to destroy time and time and time again, unsuccessfully. The result, because Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not claim his right to be equal to God. He didn't claim to be the king of kings, as was his right. He set that aside. He made himself nothing. Human. Taking the form of a servant rather than king. Born in the likeness of man. Born a baby in a manger. Not in a palace. Possibly laying in straw. Surrounded by animals. His mom and dad. As an adult, he lived a perfect life. Not just in action, but also in his mind, will, and emotions. Perfect in all things. Then he gave himself up for crucifixion. The most humiliating death. We don't need to go through all the details of that this morning. But just know this. But the Roman government stopped crucifixion at one point because they decided it was too inhumane. So what they substitute it with? Feeding people to animals, lions. They thought that was a more humane way of death. But it was, humili- it was humiliating. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. And that's what Jesus chose. He took our sins upon himself to pay the price for our sins and he experienced something that had never happened in eternity past and will never happen in eternity future. He was separated from the Father momentarily. But there was that separation that had never taken place before. So that the redemption was then possible between a holy God and an unholy people. And that's what Jesus did. As a result of that, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, and this is pointing forward to judgment day, on that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day of judgment, the vilest of sinners will be on their knees confessing. First of all, they'll be on their knees out of fear for who they now know Jesus is. And their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, also out of fear and trembling, 
Because at that moment, they will know exactly who Jesus is. And knowing that they live their lives not knowing him. Then the other aspect of that great white throne judgment, where they're condemned, the saints, those called by God, those who have confessed Jesus as the Lord and attempted to live a life that honored God in all that we do, because of that salvation provided by Jesus, our knees will bow before Jesus. Not out of fear, but in joy of knowing who Jesus is. And our tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not out of fear, but out of joy for who our Savior is. And out of joy for that restored relationship that we have with the God who spoke creation into existence. And that lasts for eternity. The application. This passage begins with a solid truth of humility of Jesus Christ, of service to mankind in providing for our salvation by his death, burial, and resurrection. And then God exalting Jesus' name above all names and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. Our task, how does, that, how does that apply to us today? Greenville, Texas, wherever we might be in 2021. We're to strive to serve others. We're to be other-oriented, to put others' needs before our own. And in doing so, we show the love of Christ in humility. The, the same humility that Jesus so clearly demonstrated while he was here on the earth. We demonstrate that love. And in doing that, we demonstrate that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a very real part of our lives by our love. John 13, verse 34 and 35. <clears throat> Jesus himself said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Join me in prayer. Father, we do come before you and we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for demonstrating, not just teaching, but demonstrating that humility that honors the Father and honors you and honors the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this truth this morning that you've shown us. We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. And it's in, his, it's in your precious name I ask these things. Amen.